So this morning we look to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 21 to 31. And this morning I do want to read that for our context as we complete chapter 12. And I've entitled this sermon, The Unity of the Body, Part 2. The Unity of the Body, Part 2. So we'll look at uh, verses 21 of chapter 12 uh, all the way to 31. Let's look together. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the the greater gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way. May God bless the reading of his word. As we look to uh, this particular passage, there are many things that we can think of that would unite the body of Christ within the Lord's church. And even as I was studying this, you think about all the ways in which the church can be united and then all the ways that individuals have identified uh, as the means of unity within the life of the Lord's church. For example, even here, and I believe it's the right thing to do, but Uh, We speak of the unity of the body uh, that we have in Christ in terms of what we should preserve. And that's absolutely a a correct place to start, especially in light of Ephesians, especially in light of Jude and places that tell us to preserve sound doctrine and to preserve uh, the once and for all faith that we have been handed down through the saints uh, by the spirit of God. That is certainly the place to start, but this is not the place to end. And I believe that as we look at the unity that Paul is trying to establish in Corinth, he doesn't end with the preservation of all those things. Those things are to drive us towards something as uh, the unity that we have is preserved. And so Paul, in carrying forward the imagery of the body of Christ by explaining the function and the necessity of the natural body parts, helps us also to understand how to function as a body. But listen to this. We function by him identifying what it is we do not perform toward one another. So he not only in the simple way to say this, not only does he tell us what to do, he tells us what not to do. And so in that way, that's also a means to help us understand how do we preserve unity within the body of Christ. 
So we're certainly known for what we do to preserve it, but we're also known for what we do not do to cause division within the body. And so here, that is Paul's concentration. He's laid the, the groundwork for us to understand what we ought to do. I believe here he begins to transition uh, just briefly because he goes back to the positive, but what we ought not to do so that we maintain the body, uh, the body's unity and the body's function. So here it is clear as you look at these particular verses, it is clear that if we are to remain unified, one of the things we cannot do is we cannot discard any member from among us. We cannot discard any member within the body of Christ from among our midst. And I'm talking about those who are true in Christ. We can't discard them. We cannot sever any part of our body and expect our bodies to function at the excellent capacity God requires of his own. And I speak of that not only in the literal body, because that's what Paul helps us to understand as he relates the physical to the spiritual, but also the spiritual sense. We cannot sever meaningful members from our midst and then expect a function at the rate that God requires of his church, especially related to unity. But the body cannot function. Listen to this. If there is any instance, and I believe Paul is driving at this point, especially in regard to the conflict that we have uh, been undergirding is kind of the reason Paul is saying many of the things he's saying. But the body cannot function if there is any instance where any member of that body acts or feels as though there is no need of any other member. I'm going to say that again. The body cannot function if there is any instance where any member of that body acts and feels as though there is no need of any other member. Because that's the destruction of unity. So you can be a champion for so many things. And I believe if you're truly a champion of something, you live out what it says practically. But one can champion the truth and champion sound doctrine. You really can champion those things verbally. But how you work that out practically is what we all should be interested in. You should never arrive to a point where you champion the things that are true and then you're discarding and severing true people from the body of Christ. And so that's what Paul is after here. And Paul is also after the fact that there were false practices in Corinth. So they were already severed from one another, but in the factions they were trying to pretend that they were unified. So on both sides of it, you see this great danger in Corinth that Paul is helping the Corinthians to avoid. And so they are known for what they accomplished toward one another. Unity is not just a concept. It is a concept, I believe, theologically and biblically that works itself in how we treat one another and how we preserve one another. So unfortunately, we live in a time and I'm going to shift this to the far right of theological thinking. We live in a time where people will uphold what they believe to be sound teaching. They will say that that's what they're about. But when it comes to the aspect of preserving one another, they roll over and discard people who truly belong to Christ. And so you see that disconnect. And that should never be the case with a healthy church and healthy doctrine permeating the life of the church. That people should be brought together and united in fellowship, their love for one another, and also treating one another as though we're all significant because of the one who saved us and purchased us. So that is a picture of the church that Paul is trying to help the Corinthians to see. But Paul turns this thing around on the Corinthians and on us as well. 
Let's look at the first verse as it comes to us. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, listen to this, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body which deem less, which we deem less honorable, on those we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. And I'll continue after that. But Paul turns this whole thing around. He turns it around on the Corinthians, and I believe he turns it around on us in the modern time in which we find ourselves. It is normal practice if you really think about this in the life of the church, because I want us to think about these things. It is normal practice, sinful at times for sure, but normal practice for people to elevate and honor those among them whom they may derive some type of benefit. That is normal practice. It's called partiality. It's called favoritism. And James speaks very plainly against it. But it is very normal, especially in religious annals, especially in what we know as uh, evangelical Christianity, so to speak, that it's very normal for people to elevate and honor those whom they believe receive they can receive some type of benefit. And or it's normal in the fleshly sense to elevate and honor those who are indeed visible, to elevate them because everybody sees them out front. So it's it's normal. And I'm not saying that it's right. I'm saying it's normal practice. It's normal for men to bestow honor and strength, perceivedly so, on others and then prop them up as being strong. And so those are normal practices. And I want you to think about why those things are wrong, especially in light of what Paul has uh, to say and the Holy Spirit ultimately has to say to us through this passage. But it's normal to make someone appear strong and then prop them up as being strong and then honor them because they're strong. And I believe that Paul attacks it directly. And you know why I think he attacks it is because that's what the factions look like. The factions look this way. The factions thrived on what we call smoke and mirrors, appearances. It was just the appearance of things. It was the perception of things. They weren't steeped in reality. And Paul rebukes them even though his name was attached to them. So Paul said, that is not the Paul the apostle the Lord saved. So I'm not going to let you tie me in my likeness to something the Lord has not accomplished in me. And so when you see this, Paul is not with it, and he certainly rebukes the Corinthians for it. And I think the rebuke comes to us in our day as well. But here Paul helps us to see, as he launches into the verses that follow, he helps us to see how we may avoid casting off any member of the body. It's very dangerous. You remember what Jesus said about the stumbling block that men might cause and the severe punishment. He was speaking of eternal judgment. Better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and to be cast into the sea than to cause any one of his little ones uh, to stumble. In summarizing and paraphrasing him. But when we recognize that, we ought to be very cautious in how our doctrine meets with how we treat one another. And I believe that that is what Paul is saying. 
I don't think Paul is saying, let's roll over and welcome error. You'll see that he fights that. But he's saying we certainly welcome those who are true and we love those who honor Christ. We love those who are partakers of the new birth and we honor those who may seem less honorable in the eyes of the flesh. He helps us see how we can avoid casting off any member of the body, especially those whom in our flesh we would otherwise have no regard for. I think this is an intentional war that we must fight within our own, uh, against our own flesh at times, that we must bring honor to those, and this is all of Christianity, we must bring honor to those whom we would otherwise deem less honorable. There's an intentionality in this. For all the talk of evangelicalism's ideas of being relational, they always mean it for the people they've deemed to be elite. And those people really aren't elite. We must begin to honor those whom we would otherwise deem less honorable. Why? Because they're purchased by him. And he hasn't lost anyone. And so they're all honorable. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of your soul, heart, mind, and being, and if you are purchased by his blood, then you are honorable. On you we bestow honor, because on him we bestow the highest honor. That is the qualification for the honor that Paul is referring to. And I believe he mentions it earlier in Romans. But I'll tell you this. A superficial Christianity honors according to the flesh. A superficial Christianity honors according to the flesh. And specifically according to outward appearance. And outward appearance alone. And I'll even tell you some other point of connection that they typically bestow honor that is based on emotional appeals, emotional stimulation, age, experience, credentialism. It's never based on a new birth. It's never based on we honor those who bring their gifts of the Holy Spirit to bear and mutually benefit one another in Christ. That is where honor starts. And then we ultimately give all honor and praise and glory to Christ alone for what he's accomplished in us. Here, though, Paul turns our thoughts to those who are weaker. Now, he's not introducing some kind of, quote unquote, social social justice objective. He's not introducing the irrational and superficial and flippant idea of uh, the promotional campaigns of the modern day. He gets us as a movement. You can look that up. Uh, It really is uh, the social uh, false gospel reemerging and repackaged. It's not that. It's not making Jesus a part of some political system or some political statement or some ethnic system or ethnic statement. It really is that Paul is after those who we would in the body of Christ deem weaker and less honorable because they are not as visible. Because they appear weak. And I don't believe he's simply talking about their constitution, like how they seem or that they're sickly. I think it's this temptation to look at the gifts because that's the context of this and then to categorize gifts as more showy and more effective based on some standard other than God's purposes for the use of that gift. So those who appear weak, you have to look very closely at what he says. It's those who we would deem to be weak. They're not necessarily weak, but we would in our flesh otherwise Deem them to be weaker and less honorable. And so if you notice that, Paul is saying everyone is honorable. 
But for those of you who think you're more honorable than those you are saying are weak, they are more honorable than you. He says this elsewhere as considering the wealth of others. Consider others more uh, as you uh, consider them with more esteem than yourself. He's not saying self-loathing and self-pity. It's uh, a worthless attitude towards yourself. He's saying you know what you are worth, but you must also see what they are worth. And so he turns our thoughts to them, those who appear to be weak. But listen to this. You know why we're honoring them? Because they only appear to be weak. They are spiritually and internally strong based on the gift of the Holy Spirit working in them for the embetterment of the body of Christ. They are actually spiritually and internally strong despite their appearance, despite how many people are gathered around them, despite how many people are drawn to them, that they are spiritually and internally strong because they are doing all that God requires. And so they are strengthened in their walk in him, although we all appear at times to be frail. That, that is the fallen world around us. We're at war with our flesh. It's the devastating effects of sin. But if you really think about it, as Paul said, when we are weak, we are strong because our reliance has increased as we are dependent on Christ for all that he is and all that he accomplishes in us. It is upon them that we bestow the honor. So then what Paul essentially is saying is when you look at what he says at the end of verse 22, and I'm jumping around here a little bit just to give us a picture of the whole. On the contrary, in verse 22, it is much truer. So it's not true to say we don't need them. It's much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. I love what that word means when we really study what it means in its context. The word means indispensable, indispensable, not necessary based on some value system that we get to come up with, but indispensable. If we lose you, we have lost the sense of the direction of the church. If you decide to walk out those doors and you are a born again Christian, not I'm not talking about the building. I mean, if, if you move into some other arena and decide you're not going to fellowship in the body of Christ any longer. It's the cautions of Hebrews right before us, as Paul wrote there before us in Corinth. If we lose you, we have lost that which is indispensable. Think about how churches would function in this day if they really thought that about the members in the body of Christ, that you are indispensable. So many of them believe they are God's gifts to men. But they don't look out at the people and say, you are indispensable. You are necessary and vital. I need your gifts. You need my gifts. And we can't lose you. Christ can't lose you. Christ won't lose those who are his. But you never stir people and push people into a direction where they're going to disfellowship because of something you have done. That's called a stumbling block. Sure, it may have been in their hearts to leave. But you never push them in that direction. That's what Paul is saying. And why is he saying that? Because Corinthians, they were divided. They were a house divided. They had factions. They believed that people were dispensable. That's why you, uh, and by dispensable means you can lose them. You can just replace them. They're replaceable. They're a dime a dozen. You just find the next one. Which is why they had separate factions. But here Paul is saying that they are indispensable. 
He's saying the weaker, those who we would deem weaker and less honorable are indispensable. They are essential and necessary. Essential and necessary. You then see how, as we apply this to our context uh, in the time in which we find ourselves, you then see how any attempt to categorize or triage men according to some fleshly standard goes directly against Paul's instruction to maintain unity through honoring the apparent weak. It's fighting against the Holy Spirit when we begin to put men on levels, venerate men as saints, venerate so-and-so through use of flattery, pretend that someone is chief rabbi amongst us all. When we begin to do those things, then we are fighting against the spirit of God himself. And Paul says that because that's what the Corinthians were doing. Paul's hope for the Corinthians, and because this is timeless, it's why I'm bringing up these things today. This is timeless. But Paul's hope for the Corinthians as it relates to the function of the church overall in that time and us in the time in which we find ourselves. He says to bestow honor to those who would otherwise get lost in the fleshly attempt to elevate those who already appear strong. That is what plagues so many today. They're elevating people whom they have deemed strong, who appear strong to the detriment and to the neglect of those who actually possess gifts but appear weak, according to their system. And so you see this, that if you look at verse 23, he says, And those members of the body which we deem less honorable. He doesn't say God deems them less honorable. He says which we deem less honorable on those we bestow more abundant honor. He's telling the Corinthians, you have flipped this thing around and you need to flip it back to its proper place. You are honoring people you are putting forward instead of honoring people whom God has set forward. And so you don't have a correct standard to measure. Our less presentable members become much more presentable. To bestow, in this case, is a term closely related to coronation. It's a term that relates to coronation. Imagine this. It is to crown those who seem apparently weak and quite frankly ignored among the body as though they are what they truly are. And that is honorable. But they're ignored. They're honored and they should be coronated as such, but they are ignored. And so Paul is saying, this is not the case, and this should never be the case. But I'll tell you, this is not a new appeal that Paul is making. He's not saying this for the first time. It is certainly one tied to the very nature of how you and I were called into the faith that we have in Christ Jesus in the first place. None of us paid our way into this. None of us were elected because of some group of individuals who inducted us. None of us were chosen into this faith that we have because of anything we did at all. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. We'll read it very quickly. But I want you to look at this. And you remember this as we begin to read. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. 
But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I think it's amazing that what I'm explaining to you and what Paul is restating is directly in line with what he introduced as he penned the letter in the first place. That that is how they were to think. This is not only true of us, but how we ought to function in the body of Christ so as to fully fit into the head who is over us, Jesus Christ. That is what we have in common, our salvation in Christ. And so Paul sets that forward in our thoughts as he relates these verses to who we are in Christ and how we must be presented before one another. But even to what Paul says in verse 23, those who were seemingly unpresentable among us in the body, we do not cover or cover up and quietly move along. We're to bring them forward. The picture he paints is coronation. As a coronating ceremony is not necessarily done in secret. All know who is now king. Now, I'm not saying we're kings. I'm saying we serve the great king. But the picture of bestowing honor on one another is that we would treat one another in that way, that we are royalty in him. In the truest sense, I'm not speaking the prosperity gospel. I'm not speaking the self-esteem movements. But I mean, we are truly joint heirs with Christ. We are royalty. Every single one of us who is in him. There's no one who is above one another in that construct. Only Christ is above us all, but we're all royalty. We're all subjects of the king in the great kingdom. We all have a piece of the inheritance that he's given us. And so God is the one who has designed this. Look with me, if you will, at verse 24. Look at this. This is very important. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But look at this. But God has so composed the body. Who created the body like this in the first place? God. Which means you and I cannot create something new. We can't do it another way because the times demand it. We can't do it another way because it works financially. God has composed the body this way. This is so explicit. Oh, how do we avoid unity I'm sorry, how do we avoid disunity in the church? How do we establish unity in the church? Look at the way that God has so composed the body. How has he made his body and intended it to function? And how has he constructed his body? That's what's before us. And the way that he has done so, Paul says, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked. And then he provides the remedy. But he has designed the body so as to have more presentable parts Give more abundant honor. Listen to this. This is so counter to what's happening and how people think. He's composed and designed a body so as to have the more presentable members give more abundant honor to those parts who would otherwise seem deficient and unbefitting of lavish honor. 
Do you see in this the so-called church's problem today? It has been turned on its head, so to speak. For today it's customary to bestow the highest honor among those who are deemed the most presentable and honorable. Those who are strong have no room for the weak. The weak are put to pasture, brushed off, brushed aside to make way for the so-called truly honorable and most visible. This is partiality. This is sin. To do it that way is sin. To do it that way is social Darwinism packaged as theological fellowship. By that I mean you simply are making people believe the survival of the fit. And if you don't look the way I want you to look, if you don't act the way I have proposed for everyone to act, you're out. And then I'm going to pretend that the Lord has cast you off. But this is not the Lord's church. That kind of behavior is sin. It's satanic. It destroys the soul. And I believe that that rebuke also comes to us from the book of James. Because it's devastating to the life of the church. Where am I getting this from? Is he just picking on the local modern church? No. Look at verse 25. I'm saying what I'm saying because of the purpose. Look at the purpose. Look how we fight against division so that there there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. How do we avoid division in the church? Do we create division to avoid division? Because that's what everybody else is doing right now. No, we care for one another. We bring all that we know to be true concerning Christ and what he's taught and what he has given us through his apostles. And we begin to truly care for one another. That's how you fight division. You fight division by care. It is not about what is effective in man's eyes. It's not about that at all. But instead, it is what is ultimately and eternally commendable in God's eyes. That's what the church is always trying to achieve or what we always should be trying to achieve is what is ultimately and eternally commendable in God's eyes. How do we hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant? That is essentially why we do what we do. So then you can't avoid the teaching or where the teaching should bring us. Is puffing and propping yourself up as the world's greatest gift And I'm speaking of all of them. Every single so-called preacher and member who does this and every single congregation who does this. Is puffing and propping yourself up as the world's greatest gift to mankind, especially those who are among the the evangelicals. Is this what God really commends? Do you really think that God is going to say as you rivaled him? For the entirety of all these American imported superficial ministries, do they really think God is going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant? If you haven't served him for one day in your ministries. I'm talking about the people 
and the preachers. God does not commend that. He condemns that. You want to know how I know? Because he has constructed it this way. Paul says that God, the way I'm explaining to you, that God has composed the body this way. Verse 25. It's very clear. He wants a solve, a solution to fight against the division that exists in Corinth. I believe the same method of warfare that God successfully waged against division in Corinth is the same means that we ought to battle today. I believe that that is timeless and that works because it comes from God. He says, but God has so composed the body. That's a very important phrase. Paul doesn't say this is my preference. This is what I think. You decide for yourselves in the spirit of the age and the time in which you find yourself. He says that God composed it this way. Composed what? Giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked. God decided that the weaker or those who we would deem less less honorable, we have to intentionally and openly bestow honor on them. Paul wrote in this case that there should be no division in the body of Christ. And he's also given us the means of uh, how do we contend against division? How do we fight division? And one of the ways to fight against division is to have genuine care and concern for the members within the body. Genuine care and concern. Genuine care and concern. A cold, a coldness and a careless so-called Christianity has nothing to do with Christ. It has nothing to do with Christ. It is merely religion and tradition. But true Christianity cares for those who are amongst its members. True Christianity cares. Primarily and first, we care about the body of Christ. There's no shortage of people who don't care about the body of Christ and go out trying to solve the world's problems. But we care about the body of Christ. We love those who belong to him because we love him. And I believe that this is what Jesus really meant when he said, the world will know you are my disciples if you love one another. All this talk about love, it's where this is all headed. Because in chapter 13, Paul begins to speak about how the gifts are only effective in as much as they are wed to our love for one another. But true Christianity cares for those who are amongst its members. I'm not saying... True Christianity needs to announce, advertise, or media blast every time the church shows care. I'm not saying that. Many of the things that we do for one another may happen and the world doesn't even take notice. Or the larger scope of the confessing church won't take notice. But we'll know. The Spirit of God within us will know. Christ knows. He knows those who are his. But we don't need to announce, advertise, and media blast and call attention to every time we care for one another. We just need to care for one another. For Jesus spoke against the Pharisees as they were guilty of that same grandstanding sin of self, uh, self-inflating pride. That they would do their deeds to be seen by others. That whenever they did something that was essentially good... 
They would ruin it by telling everybody they did something that was essentially good. And then they would plaster themselves and their names on things to show that what they did was essentially good. That's also a great danger. That's why I emphasize genuine. Because what Paul is commanding of the church in Corinth and us is that it has to be genuine. When you love and care for people, you don't care who necessarily notices what you're doing. Except that you care that God does. And you care for the person who is the recipient of that. But you're not waiting for a time in which people can find out you did what you did. Rather here, listen to this. There should be actual and demonstrative concern for the members. Because of what we talked about last sermon. Because they are individuals within the body. And they comprise the whole body. So do you mean to tell me we have to actually be among the people and care for the individual members of the body? Yes. You don't get to sit behind a desk and talk about how you care about the whole body of Christ and you never interface with the individual members. You are a corporate sponsor. You are a hired chief executive if you care that way. But what I'm calling for is for those who are shepherding to actually be amongst the people and the sheep. I'm not talking about you never get to live your life because I'm overbearingly claiming to be your shepherd. I'm talking about accessibility. The accessibility, because within care and concern, in the truest sense of operating the gifts and fellowship, there's accessibility. That you and I have access to one another. And I believe to the glory of God that that truly does happen here. That peace happens here. But we also recognize it doesn't happen everywhere. And it doesn't happen perfectly, but it happens. There should be actual and demonstrative concern. One to another, mutually speaking. Because so many will say that they care for the quote unquote body of Christ. You hear that term so often. We are the body of Christ. You are my brothers and sisters. And it's just language. Those are just terms without the things that cause us to really act on behalf of what we're saying. So many will say they care for the body of Christ, the whole body, but they have no room to care for the individuals. I'm always watching not only what people say, but what they do when they recognize or say that people are Christians. It's what they do that I'm concerned with. Because that will either solidify the confession or betray the confession. And I believe that people who are saying they care for the body and don't care for her individual members or don't have a standard to identify who are individual Christians, they're not in the body to begin with. If you don't know the features of the new birth, if you don't know the theology, I'm not just talking about empathy in and of itself. I'm talking about an empathy that should come from an understanding of God's teaching in Christ. For one, yes, it is true that those things should not make us cold. But also, it is true that when you're informed by what God truly has to say and what God has taught, you don't just welcome everything. But you certainly welcome those who are in the body of Christ. You certainly welcome them. And you can identify who they are. This business about, oh, we don't know who the Christian, we don't know who are Christian. We really don't know. No, 
You know. Because you have a spirit within you that bears witness and testimony to who are truly his. It may take some time, but you know. Because we are driven by our confession and the things that we actually practice in line with the confession. Some might say that's an arrogant statement. I think it's arrogant to act as though you don't know and subjectively place a standard to where you welcome people who look like you, talk like you, and they don't actually practice Christianity. That's arrogance. And so many are in that trap of arrogance. Some have a begrudging uh, care, a begrudging care, where they'll pout, they'll roll their eyes when they have to meet your needs, they get frustrated with you when you have needs, they get angry with you in the first place. But a a begrudging care for individuals through compulsion is not what Paul is asking the Corinthians for. He's saying, I want you to love one another. I want you to care for one another. Some even then care so they can be seen, as I've said, by others as ones who care and are praised by men. Paul said earlier, you were bought, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. But this is not the concern Paul refers to among the Corinthians. It is not the concern God expects should be the case among those even now amongst his body. This is also just as we started this, how to fight successfully against faction, schism, and division. How do we fight a biblical view of concern and care that's driven by the teaching of Christ? Notice, I didn't say it's driven by our emotions. It's driven by the teaching of Christ. Sound doctrine makes us healthy, but truly, if we are sound, We have a healthy view of those who are in Christ. We have a healthy standard to identify who is in Christ so that we can meet their needs. A healthy standard to identify who is in Christ so we can meet their needs. Verse 26. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body. And look at this. This isn't just me saying this. This is me telling you what Paul is saying by the Holy Spirit. Look at this. And individually members of it. Why in the world would he say that? For all the reasons we've been saying. It's not okay to just look at the whole body of Christ. We must see the body as comprised of individual members whom we must love and honor and care for. I also believe it's how we identify with one another is how the body functions. We suffer and rejoice with one another. When you are happy, when you are celebrating, so am I. When you are sad, when you are suffering, when you are burdened with care, so am I. But it is often difficult to suffer with one another. It's very easy to rejoice with one another. And Paul says the body of Christ functions at this high level that he's calling for when we do both. We must be careful not to become suspicious of one another when we suffer. We must be very careful. You know what I think was happening in Corinth? Because I I recognize the historical context. You have this Roman Empire that is very hostile toward Christians. And so the Christians begin to develop, or those who are confessing to be Christians, I believe in Corinth, they were beginning to develop subjective means of strength. That in the face of being weak 
according to the world's empires, they wanted to appear strong before one another. And how you do that is competition. And in competition, there's winners and losers. And they begin to build factions and even, quote unquote, triage the gifts and build factions amongst each other and begin to present themselves physically with apparel and fashion that would make one seem rich. And if you didn't have that, you were then deemed as less honorable and poor. They were doing this here and in the other churches in Asia Minor. And I believe with the context that you have in front of you, I'm not just saying that because I'm making a theory, but I believe that that is what the apostles are rebuking as you make your way through the New Testament epistles. But I also think what happens is you become suspicious of one another because you're suffering. And we truly do suffer because the world system runs counter to us. I don't mean we cannot get anything done, but I mean the world is very hostile toward Christians. We don't pity in that. In fact, we rejoice in that because we identify with the one who has overcome the world. But our lives here are an ambassadorship that is hard because we are on enemy territory. We cannot become suspicious of that. We have to suffer with one another. We cannot become suspicious of one another's rejoicing. We cannot think that that's superficial. We can't get frustrated with one another because you may be in a season where your life is going well and my life isn't. I rejoice with you. My life is going difficult and your life is going uh, into an area of difficulty. I suffer with you. That is true Christianity. The body is not a superficial body and her members are not superficial members. A plastic smile and a tilted head Christianity serves no one well especially when it is disingenuous. So many are trained to just smile when we're rejoicing and tilt our heads when we're suffering and say things like, I'm praying for you, instead of really being with people and going through it with them and praying for them in a way that you are burdened by what they're burdened and you're seeking God's outcome for them in your prayers or rejoicing with them and celebrating the goodness of God in their lives and being in a celebratory mode with them. I'm not saying we all do this all the time and that we all do this perfectly, but I'm saying this is the standard. This is what Paul is saying. This is how the body functions in fellowship, in true fellowship. You see how it puts an end to jealousy, rivalry, suspicion, factions start to come in. Esteeming people according to your subjective standards of how they ought to be and who they ought to be apart from God's standard. But look at this. Do you know how Paul defines whether we are honoring one another together? Do you know how he defines it? It's, it's very much in this text. I've just said it. It is in our ability to suffer with one another and to rejoice with one another. That's the answer to the question. How do we honor one another together? How do we honor the apparent weak among us. Well, we don't find them and say, oh, you're weak. I'm going to overdo it in your case. No. You know how you do this? It is to suffer with those who are suffering and to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Because when you do that, you reach everybody in the body of Christ. Because everybody's going through either one or the other. They're either suffering, about to suffer, rejoicing, or hopefully about to rejoice. And the goal is then to also rejoice in our suffering. 
but that for a later time. In studying this, it seems at times, and I, I want us to really think about this as Paul wrote to the Corinthians as I wrap this up. It seems at times the true danger that lies before us, and if it doesn't lie before us now, I believe that it has uh, been presented before us prior to the time that we have now. But the danger that lies before us is to lose our authenticity as a Christian body, that we're not authentic in our walk with Christ. Real before him, because if you're real before him, you're real before others. May it never be that the world would show us more compassion than those who are among the body of Christ. Because that's how people, let's admit it, go out to the world. People typically apostatize, yes, because their hearts are wicked. Yes, because their hearts are evil. But in most cases, because the world treats them better than the confessing church. Think about that. That ought not be so. That Satan's system will treat us better than those who claim to belong to Christ. When truly all along, many of them are a part of Satan's system. The difference is they're saying they belong to Christ. But may it never be that that's the case. As it stands now, as manipulative and fleshly the compassion of the world. I'm not saying the world exercises true compassion. She doesn't. It's manipulative. It's ambitious. It's fleshly. It is also another game of keeping up appearances. But as it stands now, as manipulative and fleshly, the quote-unquote compassion of the world, at times the church is put to shame, the so-called church. I'm not talking about the real church. The so-called church is put to shame because her compassion is steeped in partiality and compulsion. And so people say, well, I'd rather just I'm gonna stay home on Sunday. The wicked, the wicked hearts wanted that anyway, but... They walk into a church, they're treated worse than they are when they're in the world. Paul says no. One should come into the house of the Lord and be strengthened by our gifts practiced toward one another and our love shown to one another and our care for one another. Paul earlier told the Romans to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Romans chapter 12, verse 15. I said it before as we close. What does this look like? What are you describing? This sounds very idealistic. If you look at it in the way of divine reality, look at Romans chapter 16. Read that again. You'll see that Paul is practicing everything that he says here. People you didn't even know existed or nor would know existed unless he brought them up and etched their names by the Holy Spirit on Scripture for all time. He just walks through and says, here's who loved me. Here's who ministered to me. Here's who suffered with me. Here's who I'm rejoicing with. Here's whose gifts I benefited from. And even when he was physically alone, their love for him extended through his life and beyond his life because they cared as true Christians do. Nothing will threaten the body of Christ more than a lack of care and a lack of compassion and love for one another. Next time we'll look at the gifts and offices within the church. We won't make it all the way to verse 31. But also, we're going to look at the excellency of love because Paul talks about that 
as it relates to all that has been said today. Let's pray.